This is the final lesson in our five-part study of the transgender ideology that is really dominating in our society right now and the, the biblical response to it. All right, does everybody have a copy of the resource list and blank paper if you want it? Where are the extras of those if we need them? Oh, they've got them back there. If you need the resource list or blank paper to take notes on, we'll get that to you. All right, so let me start by just very briefly reviewing. If you were here at the beginning of our study, you saw this graphic which summarizes, is my best attempt to kind of summarize transgender ideology. So let's take a look at this for a minute. Let's review this together before we get into finding hope in the truth this morning. Okay? Let's pray for just a moment. Dear Heavenly Father, would you give strength and wisdom? Let the truth of your word shine hope in a way that we need it to today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, start at the bottom. Transgender ideology teaches that. So we'll start with biological sex down here. Biological sex can be male or female, or they would say a countless variety of mixtures of the two, which sometimes they use the word intersex for. Or they teach that part of your body can be One sex and another part of your body can be another sex. Most often they would refer to your brain being a different sex than the rest of your body. But regardless, it doesn't matter much because they say this is arbitrary. It is assigned by a doctor or parents based on external observation. And so then if we continue to go up the the graphic, all that truly matters is the gender identity that you discern about yourself or choose for yourself. And that gender identity, if we look over here at the left edge of the green box, is a matter of your self-identification as well as lifestyle, what gender you choose to live kind of in accordance with culturally, and how others treat you, what they think of you as being. Do you live as male or female or something else? Do Do people treat you as such? And most importantly, how do you self-identify. And so in the rest of that green box, we see that gender identity might be male or female or both or none or fluid, which would mean it changes around, or something else, not even human. There are supposedly an infinite variety of gender possibilities. And so then two things must come out of this, which you see in the two boxes that are up at the top. And we'll start with the one on the right. Affirmation means that the people around you must believe what you say about your identity, approve of it, and fully support you in whatever transitions you want to make. And if not, transgender activists are very quickly, very quick to point out the heightened risk of, of suicide. But then in addition to affirmation, there also needs to be transformation beginning with transformation of behavior, but then that can continue to using hormones or surgeries to try to bring a person's body into alignment with their gender identity. Okay, so this is the transgender ideology which has 
come to dominate so much of American thought today. We have learned that it is destructive. And to say that is not an exaggeration. That's not hype. It damages kids, families, mental health, bodies. And most of all, it damages souls because it deceives people, especially young people, into turning against the Creator and His good ways. So today I want to finish by challenging all of us to find our hope in the truth, to rejoice in the far greater biblical truths, and and to do what you can to share those life-giving and hope-giving truths with others. If you are... Uh, if you agree with the things I've been, we've been teaching in this series, then hopefully today we'll encourage you and give you hope. If you maybe haven't agreed with some of them, but you're thinking and processing these things, um, what I want to do today is challenge you to find your hope in the truth, that that's really where hope is found. All right, before I get into that, just one practical thing that I... Um, didn't get to the previous weeks, but it's the most common question I get asked about gender things, and that is about pronouns and and names and what you should do um, about that today. And so I'm just going to comment very briefly. Both um, Andrew Walker and Patricia Weirakun's books have entire appendices about um, names and pronouns if you want to get into more detail. But in general, the principle is, so the question is, should we use the new names or pronouns of those who are stating that they are transgender? In general, the principle is that we don't want to support or encourage what is false and what is destructive. So we're going to try to not, as much as we have, as much as we can, we're going to try to not participate in the craze today that demands that every person announce their preferred pronouns and everybody is required to follow those exactly and so forth. So in general, we don't want to support or encourage what is false or destructive. Also in general, if you're interacting with someone who wants you to identify them as something other than their biological sex, usually the best course of action is to just try to not use pronouns altogether. Um, But it is important to keep in mind that this is an area where we have to leave space for, one, individual situations, and two, individual Christian conscience. There may be work situations in which Christians decide they need to follow certain kinds of company policy about certain things. Not every work situation, but there may be some. There may be some personal relationships where Christians decide to use the preferred name of a family member or or a friend. And we've got to leave room for some of that, for some differences in different settings, different relationships, and, and different conscience positions. And there's also some difference between names and pronouns, And again, to get into all those details is more than we can do today. But it takes wisdom, and not every situation is clear-cut and simple. But in general, the principle is we don't want to support or encourage what is not true and what is damaging. So let's move on now to talk about celebrating truth and placing our hope in that truth. You know, I admit that there are times when I wish I was a lot older. You know why? Because then I wouldn't have to wonder what ministry is going to be like for the next 40 years in this country. I wish that I was at the sunset of my ministry, Lord willing, not in the middle of it. But that is not a godly way to think. The words of Mordecai ring true. Esther 4.14 Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? That's a rhetorical question. And the answer is you have come to the kingdom. 
You should know that. And we know that God has not made any mistake in where and when He has placed us. So let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So don't join me in wishing you weren't <laughs> living in this generation. Look to God instead. And we have great reason for encouragement because the false, destructive lies of transgender ideology are not the only available option. There is something far better and we've got it. It is the truth that comes from the Creator of life. And unlike all of the confusions and all the contradictions and all the word games of transgender ideology, God's truths are actually clear and simple. And we're going to work through some of those, but I want to start by just giving you an example of a, of a kind of pretty simple statement of some of those truths. So this is from Trevin Wax. God created us male and female in His own image to know and love Him and share His everlasting joy. The good life is found not in inventing our purpose, but in bowing to God's design and reflecting His glory. Sexuality is a God-given aspect of our embodied existence as people made in His image, male and female, ordered toward the physical and life-giving union of a man and woman in marriage. Sexuality is embodied, not imagined, physically grounded, not psychologically determined. We are persons beloved by God, created to love God, love others, and care for the good world He has made. We become like what we love. Our identity is found not by looking within ourselves, but by looking up to God. I hope you can see that's, that's pretty clear. It's pretty simple. It doesn't mean our human hearts like some of those truths. Our sinfulness may fight against them, but they are life-giving and they are true. I'll use this quote multiple times today. What transgender ideology falsely promises, only Jesus can truly provide. And that is why we can live with courage and hope even when every major American institution seems to be taken over by transgender ideology. Once again, I want to point you to the identity seminar that we did last spring because it laid the foundation for what we're talking about here. And in that seminar, we demonstrated how a biblical understanding of identity aligns with reality, supports healthy relationships, gives life real meaning, results in true freedom and authenticity, gives clarity about morality, encourages responsibility, results in peace, and helps us reach our full potential. Transgender ideology promises all of those things. God's truth actually delivers those things. So today, I want to use the same general outline that we used in the Identity Seminar, but I want to apply it more directly to transgender ideology. The outline was culture, creation, crisis, and new creation. In our study, so far, we've looked extensively at culture and what's going on with transgender ideology. So now let's look at creation, crisis, and new creation as applied to transgenderism. So first of all, a sequence of truths that are the beauty of God's truths about creation and their meaning. Number one is the goodness of the Creator. In transgender ideology, there is only one source of goodness. Only one trustworthy source of goodness. Everything else is oppressive. 
everything else is out to get you. And that one source of goodness is your inner person, your psychological self. But actually, there is one who is truly good, and that is God. He is the powerful creator who also loves people. He is far greater than our little selves, perfect and majestic in every way. He is a rock, and he is a fortress, and he does everything right. And yet, through Jesus Christ, he can be your father and even friend. We can't actually trust ourselves. We can trust Him. So number one, the goodness of the Creator. Number two, the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 says, God created man in His image. The high point of the story of creation is God's act of making mankind. Genesis paints a picture of a God who, like an artist, finishes a masterpiece with extra care, attention, and precision. And he's talking about humanity, which is a uniquely amazing part of God's creation. Walker points out that history's greatest crimes result from denying God's image in every single man and woman. Slavery, the Holocaust, abortion, all sorts of genocides. Where have they come from? The belief that certain human beings don't matter. When you deny the image of God in man, you have basically nothing left. Transgender ideology tells people that they are amazing, and yet there is no foundation for that claim. The Bible also tells people that they are remarkable, but for a reason, because God has created you in His image. That gives us actual dignity. That gives us actual purpose. And it means that we can know God and be part of His family and part of what He's doing in the world. Number three, creation also teaches individual uniqueness. You ever think that God could have made us all just cookie-cutter copies exactly like each other? He could have done that, right? Yet, have you ever met two people who are identical? Not a single thing different about them in personality and interest in life and looks or anything? God made every human being to be marvelously unique. And that's why the Bible can say, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139, verse 14. Creation also teaches us the goodness of our bodies. Transgender ideology has this very low view of the body. It's, it's something that's not really who we are. It's more like a prison that we're trapped in. The body is an enemy. It's an obstacle. And so we can hormonally or surgically try to force it to fit with what we wish it was. But God instead tells us that our bodies are actually an important part of who we are. God created us to be much more than a body, but not less. The Bible says that we'll spend eternity in these bodies, though in their resurrected, glorified form. See, God created body and soul as a unified whole, and it's going to be that way forever. And so even though our bodies are sickened by sin, they are still a good gift from God. You don't have to look like a supermodel to be important. Your body already has dignity because God created it. You don't have to be able to bench press your body weight to be important. Your body already has dignity because God created it, not because you live up to some physical, cultural expectation. But that's just the beginning of what the Bible tells us about the goodness of the body. We could go on and on because consider, for example, Jesus who took on human flesh, a body, came in a body, and then after his death, his 
body was resurrected. This once again points to the dignity of our bodies. And then the Bible tells us that when Jesus saves us, our bodies become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And it says that our bodies belong to the Lord. They're not trash. They're something that God values as His own. They're part of His good creation of us. And He's going to redeem these bodies someday. So while transgender ideology really trashes your body, God dignifies it. And while transgender ideology results in hormonally or surgically trying to force your body to be something else, God promises that someday He's going to He's going to transform your body into what it truly is supposed to be in the image of Christ. Number five, from creation we learn the goodness of our male and female bodies. Genesis 1, verse 27, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So, male and female are not culturally constructed categories of oppression. They are part of the image of God, part of His good plan for humanity, which will continue even into resurrection. God created humanity as male and female, as Jesus Himself affirms. King David sang of God's knowledge of us from the time we start developing within our mother's womb. Starting from the womb, God creates you to be a sexed person, a person who is either male or female. He gives you the biology of either a male or a female. And in that biology, He is telling you something about your real, particular, individual self and about what it means for you to live as your real, particular, individual self in ways that are good for you and good for everyone around you. So the male or female uniqueness of our bodies is good. Number six, from creation we also learn the absolute equality of male and female in dignity and worth. Genesis 1 says that God created both in His image and blessed them, and it was good. And God's Word goes on to say you can't kill either one, you can't mistreat either one. In the New Testament we see that Jesus' treatment of women was culturally revolutionary and we're told that God saves both male and female and makes them equally His beloved children. Number seven, creation also teaches us the absolute, the the goodness of the distinctions between our male and female bodies, their unique capacities, and the tendencies that result. God made male and female similar but distinct, equal but different. We are intentionally different so that we need each other. God wisely planned that male and female would be complementary. And so that starts, is rooted in our bodies. Our male and female bodies give us similar but distinct capacities. Now that's most obvious in sexual reproduction, but it actually goes deeper than that. Our differences extend to the deepest levels of our being. Chromosomes, brains, voices, body shapes, body strengths, and reproductive systems. He's talking about male and female here. What our bodies are designed and destined for are different. And these differences also give us our unique tendencies. There is abundant evidence that males and females tend to make different kinds of life choices they tend to have different types of priorities 
and different interests and different instincts and different approaches to risk and different degrees of certain psychological traits. The reality is that men tend to be more inclined to things like initiating and conquering and exploring, while women tend to be more inclined to things like nurturing and refining and beautifying. And God designed it that way, though with remarkable variety within male and female. And so the fact that male and female are not identical is wonderfully good. Jesus said, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Our different biologies give us different tendencies which complement each other, and only God was wise enough to put that together. And so this gives us actually what I would suggest is a true understanding of gender. When I started working on the background work for all of this study, the first portion of my study was simply trying to wrap my mind around the terms because they seem to change every day and be used in so many different ways. Gender is a word that gets used a million different ways, since there are infinite options, of course. And, but I want to just propose a way that we should use the word gender. Um, and, you know, I'm no authority on this and have no right to tell anybody. <laughs> I mean, I don't, nobody has to listen to me. But here's my suggestion for what gender is. In transgender ideology, gender is our psychological sense of self-identity today, right? In transgender ideology, gender is my psychological sense of my self-identity today. Well, how should we use the word? What should we refer to by the word gender? Here's my proposal. That the word gender refers to the good way in which the different God-given realities of our male and female bodies result in different God-given tendencies which support God-given roles. And as we've emphasized, there is a lot of variety from person to person. This doesn't cram us into a tiny little culturally stereotyped box but it does set us in a general direction, a God-given direction as male or female. That's what we see in this graphic, which we used back in week one, which illustrates the biblical view of sex and gender. So at the bottom here, we have, just as in the other chart, we have biological sex, which is also a calling from God, and that is male or female. Now, there are some disorders of sexual development. We talked about those. Those most often result in the inability to bear children. But those disorders don't change the basic reality that God creates human being as male or female, and that is our God-given calling. So it's pictured here as an arrow that sets your life in a direction. Now, right down the middle of each arrow, we have biblical gender essentials the foundational things that God calls men and women to do. And then outside of those essentials, there is lots of room for individual uniqueness. Great variety from one woman to another, from one man to another. But within their God-given direction and calling as male or female. One of the greatest ironies of transgender ideology is that in their system... Gender is actually meaningless because gender can mean anything. 
if gender can mean everything from leaf to fox to female, gender is not anything. Transgender ideology seems to be on this seesaw. Male is terrible. You should switch and be female. No, wait. Female is terrible. You should switch and be male. Estrogen is terrible. You really want testosterone. It's awesome. No, wait. Testosterone is terrible. You really want estrogen. It's awesome. No, wait. Both are terrible. You don't want any of this. But the Bible gives our gender clear meaning. It is the good God-given way in which our different, the different God-given realities of our male and female bodies result in different God-given tendencies which support God-given roles. And all of it is good. Now, can it be misused? Can it be abused? Yes. That's not the problem with God's creation. That's the problem with our sin that does that. The way God created you as male and female with your unique capacities and tendencies is very good. Then finally from creation, we also learn the goodness of sex and marriage. And that's a far larger point than we can tackle today. But simply put, to take these two things, sex first, the view of sexual relationships in transgender ideology is very misguided and very damaging and even very bewildering. Marriage. What does transgender ideology think about marriage? They think it's another one of those socially oppressive constructs that we've got to get rid of if people are ever going to be truly happy. But in contrast to that, the Bible lays out the beautiful purposes of both sex and marriage in the doctrine of creation. All right, so we've moved quickly through eight reasons why the biblical truth of creation gives clarity and meaning to our lives in a way that transgender ideology cannot do. And along the way, we've frequently referred to the goodness of what God has created. Yet, when we look around us, much of what we see is so bad. Does the Bible have any explanation for that? Because transgender ideology agrees that when we look around us, everything is so bad. Does the Bible have an explanation? Yes, it is an explanation that is not only much better, but it is also true. It tells us that humanity has fallen from, what the, from the goodness of what God created. This is what we could refer to as crisis. Why do some men and women take their God-given strengths and use them against each other? Why do some people take something like marriage and manipulate it or, or use it as a place for abuse? Why do some parents take their authority and actually use it to abuse their children? Why do some governments get so off track and do so much damage? Why can our bodies be so messed up with sexual disorders and disabilities and complications? And why can our hearts desire things that are so destructive and so damaging? Why can we want evil like we sometimes do? Well, the Bible explains all of that. Transgender ideology agrees that it's all messed up, but their explanation is wrong, and so their prescription is completely wrong. Their explanation is all external. Everything is wrong outside of us. If society would just support me as I follow my heart, everything would be perfect. But that is false. God tells us that the root of our problems is actually internal. It begins in the sinful heart. And we explain that more in the Identity Seminar. But for now, I want to move on to the prescriptions. 
the different prescriptions offered by the Bible and transgender ideology. So think of it like this. The Bible teaches that God's creation was good, and then we fell. We tore things apart by our sin and our rebellion against God. And what we need is for God to restore us back to the way things are supposed to be. We need God to restore us back to healthy male and female, to God's created purpose for male and female. Back to healthy marriages, healthy governments, healthy parenting, healthy hearts and desires the way God originally created them to be. We need God to restore, renew, redeem us, for we have fallen. Okay? But transgender ideology gives a prescription that is the exact opposite. Rather than going back to what God has created, they believe we need to tear everything down and get as far away as we possibly can from what God created. You see just what I've done with my hands here, how we've ended up with two completely opposite solutions? One is restored back to God. The other is get as far from God as you can to find the answer. So what do they want to do? Transgender ideology is part of a bigger movement that wants to tear down government, except when government helps them mandate their ideology, then they like it. They want to tear down any organized religion. They want to tear down gender so that there are just infinite gender possibilities and it means anything you want. They want to tear down male and female so that we don't even talk or think in those categories anymore. They want to tear down language and rebuild it with newly invented pronouns and with terms like birthing person. They want to tear down mother and father so that we don't even use words like that anymore. And they want to tear down family and any kind of parental authority. So the Bible says that we need God to save us and bring us back to Him for we have fallen. Transgender ideology says that we need to get as far away from every good thing God created as we possibly can. And in so doing, somehow we're going to be our own redeemers. It will never work. The more they tell people to listen to their own hearts and follow their own feelings, the more they trap them. The more they tell people that the answer is found in tearing down everything, the more they leave people with everything important and valuable in their life torn down. The more they stir people up to hate every kind of authority, the more they create a spiral of more and more confusion and damage just as we're seeing in the world today. Those are not prescriptions. Those are anti-prescriptions. They do not heal. They harm True healing is found in God's diagnosis and God's prescription. And as we've already said, the diagnosis is sin. We rebelled against God and we fell. We became cursed. Sin became like the ultimate cancer. And so we live in great crisis. But our male and female biology is not the problem. Gender is not the problem. Marriage and parenting are not the problem. Sin is the problem. It's the source of the crisis then the prescription is to be forgiven for our sin, to be restored to God, to be given a new heart that is spiritually alive. We don't need to tear down male-female marriage parenting. We need to be restored to the true meaning of those things. We don't need to run from God. We need to repent of our sin and believe in Jesus Christ who died that he might bring us to God. So that brings us to the third major theme, which is new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
Someday Jesus is going to make all things new and a new creation. But now, today, Jesus can make you a new creation. He can save you and forgive you and bring you to God and adopt you into God's family and give you a new heart that's spiritually alive. He can restore you to your God-given purpose as a unique human being. Though we have rebelled, God's the one who, who sent the hope, who sent the healer, who sent the Savior. He sent His own Son who took on human flesh and perfectly lived human identity. The one person who had their identity perfectly right was Jesus Christ. And He always loved and worshipped God and He always loved others and so He never sinned. And then He willingly laid down His life to pay the penalty for our sin. He died in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, paying the full penalty for our sins so that we can be forgiven. And he also rose, defeating the power of death so that all who come to him will receive eternal life and new living hearts. So you see, transgender ideology appeals to people's search for meaning. It gives them a sense of identity, even though it's not rooted in reality. True identity is found when God says to you, you're my child. You are redeemed. You are loved by God. You are mine. And he cherishes us as his dearly loved children. And there you get your true identity. But also this, that doesn't take away your uniqueness as an individual. It actually unlocks who you are as an individual. Because your uniqueness is from God. He's the one who wonderfully made you. And you actually can't be you, your true identity, the fullness of meaning for your life apart from God. It's not possible. And so as Jesus Christ brings us to God through the cross, he also restores our potential to really be us. He makes us a new creation. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He begins transforming us into the image of Christ. And along the way, you discover that all the things that are unique about you were God's gifts to you so that you could love and serve him and love and serve other people. So once again, what transgender ideology falsely promises Only Jesus can truly provide. And again, I would encourage you to listen to the end of the Identity Seminar. I know that I read this list to you earlier, but I want to say it again, this time with specifically tied to being a new creation in Christ. Being a new creation in Christ aligns with what's real. It's not false. It's not made up. It's not just a psychologized thing. It supports healthy relationships instead of tearing them apart. It gives life real meaning. It's where you actually find what it means to be free in a way that sin can never do for you. It's how you become the authentic self. It it gives clarity about morality, about what's right and wrong, about what's evil and what's good. It encourages responsibility so that we live as human beings in ways that actually take care of one another. It results in actual peace and helps us reach our full potential, which is from God and only found through God. So now what I want to do is focus on two other aspects of the new creation that can be ours in Christ. So much could be said here, but just two things. Number one, we can experience aspects of new creation change now 
in this earthly life. If you are a child of God, saved through Jesus Christ, then there's a day coming when Jesus is going to make you completely new. But before that day comes, new creation change can still be happening in your life today. Jesus is changing us even today. You might think of it like renovating. Jesus is renovating this old house. And that is very relevant for the temptations in this life. Remember that we've said that one of the reasons why we might experience gender dysphoria is because our hearts tend to go astray from God and His ways. So when He sets us on a path of male or female, our heart will tend to say, no, I don't want that. I want to go this way instead. And that's where, this is where all sinful temptations come from, whether it's in the area of gender or stealing or anger or abuse or immorality or cheating or manipulating or controlling or lying. In every area, the point is that God says, go this way. And our hearts say, no, I'm going to go this way. James chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's where sin comes from. But the good news is that Jesus can help us with that. When we humbly admit that problem in our hearts, Jesus can help change our sinful desires. And Jesus can help us live in obedience despite our desires. Okay? Here's something extremely important. The Bible teaches that self-control is good. That's crazy talk out there in the world. The Bible teaches that self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit. The Bible teaches that self-control is empowered by God. It is a gift of God. It is a blessing from God to rescue you from following whatever your heart feels like whenever you feel like it. Self-control is a grace of God to rescue us from destroying ourselves. Jesus might take an angry person and he might change their heart in such a way that they don't even feel such anger. Or they might continue to feel that anger rising up and Jesus might strengthen them to self-control, to do what is right anyways. The same can be true for lying, for stealing, for abuse, for any sin, and for gender. When our hearts don't want what God called us to be as male or female. When we humbly admit that our heart wants to go astray from God's direction as male or female, then Jesus helps us on the journey, walks with us. His power works in us. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Paul says, Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so then Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Our temptations may be severe. Our temptations might not go away. Dysphoria might remain with us year after year. There are lots of kinds of dysphoria, right? Gender is one of them. And yet, His grace is sufficient. New creation life can actually be working in me now 
today. But then we have to combine that with the understanding that someday full and complete new creation is coming. Our transformation in the new creation will be the final healing of both body and soul forever. We will be resurrected, and all that is wrong with these bodies will be made right. And all that is wrong with society and culture will be made right. We may have to suffer. We will have to suffer all the way through this earthly life. Remember, the world and the flesh and the devil are not going to make a ceasefire with you. They're not going to show up on the 30th anniversary of when you became a Christian and say, hey, you know, little 30th anniversary gift for you. No suffering, no temptation today. Just going to leave you alone for a day. You will never have that day. Not one day in your entire earthly life. And yet, Christ will never leave us. He will walk with us through every suffering and every temptation and every trial, and he will bring us into his eternal kingdom where we will experience the final healing of both body and soul. I'm going to finish with some other people's words who said it better than I can. The call is to be content with what God has made us to be even with all those features of our life and identity that we didn't choose or can't change. The love of God frees us to lose ourselves in serving Him and serving others. Contentment, then, is not incompatible with lament. You know what she's saying there? We can be content and yet say, oh, I hate this temptation that nags me all the time. We can be content and yet say, I hate this disorder of sexual development that has troubled my life. Contentment is not incompatible with lament. God has not called us to pretend that things are not as they are, but to believe that they will not always be as they are. Our shared Christian faith also gives us something science cannot, a rational basis for being confident that things will one day get better. The resurrected Jesus was seen, heard, and touched by witnesses. And this Jesus will one day return to renew and refurbish this entire creation. To be a new creation in Christ is to experience the promise of what fully awaits those who place their trust in Him. A coming day when the disorder of creation is put back together And when dysphoria of any kind is replaced by euphoria of every kind. The Lord Jesus and the future he offers make sense of the suffering in and around us now. And his spirit strengthens anyone, no matter how hard their life is, to struggle on with joy now, knowing that what is to come for Jesus' family is what they most want to experience the glory and peace of perfection. And then he quotes Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so then he says, Jesus is where we find what we are looking for. If you have been listening to transgender ideas 
and thinking that maybe a gender transition could be the thing that would give you that happiness that you're really looking for, I urge you instead to come to Jesus. He is the way and the truth and the life. And what transgender ideology is falsely promising you, actually only Jesus can truly provide. Jesus is where we find what we are looking for. I've given you a resource list handout, so would you take that now and let me comment on it for just a moment. A couple of things about it. First of all, I've read many things. I haven't read everything on this paper, so I can't vouch for everything that you might come across in this resources. Second of all, this can't possibly be exhaustive. There are so many resources. These are just samples of what's available out there. Third, this is going to become outdated quickly. It's November of 2023, if I'm remembering right. And if you're watching this a couple years from now, you're probably going to need an updated resource list on some of these things because the issues will keep shifting. New resources will keep coming. But I'm giving you something as up-to-date as I can possibly give you as of right now, and I'm giving you samples of the kind of resources that are available. I have given you notes about several of the things, but let me just comment on a couple. If you look at the recommended Christian books list, the third book listed is my, my favorite it's the book by Patricia Wirakun, The Gender Revolu- Revolution. Um, it's not the most easily organized, so it's not the book that you can just grab off yourself and quickly look up statistics about detransition or puberty blockers or something like that. Um, Alan Branch's book, the one right above it, is better for that. It focuses on the statistics and research and is well organized. But in terms of giving the best big picture overview and uh, talking about all the key points, Dr. Wirakun's book is um, my favorite for now. The next book by Matthew P.W. Roberts is fantastic. It's called Pride, Identity, and the Worship of Self. It is hard-hitting, um, but excellent. The next book listed there is the best thorough study of identity in the Bible. It's Brian Rosner's book. So much good stuff that's available. Go down to the end of the recommended Christian book section, And if you're not familiar with the name Rosaria Butterfield, you see the note there. She was a lesbian professor of women's studies in higher ed, and her her specialty was queer theory, and uh, and then God saved her. So if you're not familiar with her books, um, you should certainly take a look at those. Under examples of other Christian resources, um, I tell you that right in the middle there, the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and then the Gospel Coalition, if you go to those pages, you will be amazed at how much is there. They have produced a tremendous amount of helpful material, and the Gospel Coalition especially has um, a lot of things especially designed for parents. Then under the books from non-evangelical Christian sources, some of these are just secular, some of these are um, uh, like Jewish or Roman Catholic uh, you see Abigail Schreier's book is listed there, um, among many others that I've used. And then the rest of it just mostly names some things that I've referred to as we've gone along in the study, so that if you need to go back to those, 
you can find it. That, that link to the Detransition Diaries documentary is new. I haven't shared that with you before. That's the second thing there in that final section. So once again, um, and, and the last thing listed there is that lawsuit that I encourage everybody to read just at least the first couple pages of. Um, is very important. Okay, and so finally I just, again, encourage everybody to pick up at least something from this first list, from the Recommended Christian Books list, and have it in your house so that if you're in conversation with somebody at work, if you're trying to help your children navigate through some of this or whatever the situation might be, you've got a go-to resource. Um, A great way to do it would be to buy all three of the first books at the top of the Recommended Christian Books list. They complement each other really well. Um, but I just encourage you to make sure you have something. Um, and parents, you can see there are resources later in that list, especially for, for um, uh, working with your, your children. All right, we're out of time. Let's pray. Father, we commit to you all of these truths and pray that you would demonstrate that you are the loving rescuer of our sinful hearts. And so in whatever ways we are wanting to try to find our identity and meaning apart from you, would you please bring us back instead? Redeem and rescue. And we pray that in your mercy, you would overthrow the falsehood of this ideology that is deceiving so many. It is only your power that is going to be great enough to overthrow it. But we pray that in your mercy, you might. And until that day, may you save one person at a time like you did with Rosaria Butterfield. Might you save those who are trying to find their hope in lies. May they instead, by your grace, find their hope in Jesus. And let us be voices to them, always ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.